Thank you, Paul, for that ministry of music. Good evening. Great to see you all here tonight. Thank you for coming back for our evening service. I'd ask you to uh, pray for uh, Pastor Dave. He's being very modest, but he has uh, quite a plateful at ministerial convention this year. He's the registrar. He's also the worship leader. And uh, Pastor Dave and I were to um, make a presentation on developing leadership in the church. Uh, I am not attending ministerial convention this year. And so he's going to be speaking for himself and for me. So uh, he's got quite uh, two days. So uh, pray for him and as uh, he has all those responsibilities plus a miserable cold. So. Also, just by way of information to the Board of Elders, uh, we're going to meet here on Tuesday night, not my home, so uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, our meeting will be here on uh, Tuesday night, Lord willing. Tonight, we are looking at the immutability of God as we think about God's attributes, the uh, changelessness of God, if you will. The theme is God does not change. It is an attribute that certainly flows out of and is related to the fact that God is eternal. So it's the most logical attribute, I think, to consider next. God cannot change for the better, for He is perfect in all His attributes. God can't improve. So God never evolves, grows, or improves in any way. He's not smarter today than he was yesterday. God will not change for the worse, for he is perfect in all his attributes. God never diminishes, deteriorates, or grows old. God is constant. We find God today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. Of all the attributes, this is one in which we are not like God. God's attributes are divided into two categories. Theologically, and that those two categories are the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. The communicable attributes are attributes that we share in common with God. Now, when I say we share them in common, that doesn't mean that we have them in the fullest sense that God does, but uh, they are attributes that that we can uh, demonstrate. For example, wisdom. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. We are not all-knowing, but we can know. So in that, that's a communicable attribute. That is an attribute that we can indeed be like God. Eternality. In its truest sense, as we've been stressing the last two Sunday nights, has to do with independence, self-sufficiency. That God is self-existent. Man is not. Man is a dependent being. Man will always be a dependent being. Therefore, mankind uh, does not share uh, the attribute of eternality. Mankind does not share the attribute of immutability either. We do not share in the immutability of God. Mankind is constantly changing. Genesis 49.4 Unstable as water. Thou shalt not excel. Uh, we are viewed like, like water, that, 
that can't hold up. That you put something on water, it's going to sink. It is unstable. We are unstable. We are unreliable. We are constantly changing. We are constantly growing in some respects and diminishing in others. Improving in some ways and, unfortunately, digressing in others. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, there's an interesting verse. And it's an interesting verse because of its theological implications. God is finding fault with the nation of Israel because Israel has been unfaithful to the covenant. And we have this statement in Hosea 6-7. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. That's the way that the New American Standard translates the uh, Hebrew of Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. King James translates it, but they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. The word man in Hebrew is Adam. That is Adam, Adam. And Adam in Hebrew can refer to either the person, Adam, that's what his name means, man, or it can refer to mankind in general. And you have to translate it based on context. Is it talking about mankind or is it talking about the literal uh, Adam, the first created man? And so the question comes in Hosea, is it simply saying, like Adam, uh, Israel transgressed the covenant? Or is it saying, like men do, Israel translated, uh, Israel uh, violated the covenant? And uh, both are true. Adam transgressed the covenant, so we're like him. But it's the general characteristic of mankind. Adam was our representative. He represented us actually. He behaved in a way that we would behave. And so either translation works. The point is, mankind is constantly changing. Constantly changing. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bobink notes that the fact that God is unchanging in his being is the utmost importance for maintaining the creator-creature distinction and for our worship of God. The closest that we come to being immutable is to be steadfast. And we are encouraged to be steadfast. When we are steadfast, we are most like God in His immutable character. I'm going to say much more about that at the end. And aside, Jesus, in His divine nature, does not change. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ, the same Yesterday, today, and forever. So, in his deity, Jesus doesn't change. But Jesus, in his human nature, did change. Because Jesus was a man, he was therefore mutable. Luke 2.52 And Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. We know that he grew physically. He's a little baby. And he grows into adulthood. He grows a man. So physically, he changed. But not only did he change physically, but the Scripture is clear to tell us that he increased in, in wisdom. Just as a child grows, 
He was a human child. And he grew not only physically, but he grew intellectually. He learned. You remember at the age of 12, we find him in the uh, temple. And he's asking questions of the rabbis. And they marvel at his understanding. But nonetheless, his understanding wasn't perfect, if you will. That the period of time, it's not until he is uh, 33 years of age, approximately, that he begins a public ministry. What was he doing? He was growing. He was developing. He was maturing. Uh, That's kind of a hard concept to get our minds around. But the point is, he is truly God, thus immutable. And he is truly man, thus mutable. And we see both of those attributes in one person, Jesus Christ. (coughs) So what do we mean when we refer to God's immutability? God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet God does feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. God is immutable in his essence or person or being. God does not change in reference to his existence. God is not changed by reason of age. This flows out of his eternality. Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. For you are the same, and thy years have no end. The psalmist speaks of the most stable parts of our creation, namely the the earth and the heavens. We spoke about that last week. The same God that made them shall destroy them. Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but you shall endure. All of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture. Shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. However, God will not change. Psalm 102.26 They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture. Thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. But also, God is immutable in his perfections or attributes. Thus, God is immutable in his character. A synonym in theological circles for attributes is to talk about God's perfections. Because in all of his attributes, they are perfect. They are perfect. And because they are perfect, again, they cannot be changed. So again, we are told that God is immutable. Malachi 3.6 I am the Lord, I change not. Note in this verse, again, we are reminded that immutability is unique to God. For I am the Lord. Again, all capitals. That takes us back to the idea, I am Jehovah. I am the self-existent God. I change not. Now this promise of not being consumed is the application of of God's immutability. I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, because I am the Lord, because I do not change, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God says, if I were a God who changed my mind, if I were a God who was going to respond to your present situation, you would be wiped out. But God says, I don't change. I made a covenant with you. And it's an everlasting covenant. 
I keep my covenants. Because God is immutable, His love, mercy, faithfulness, etc. do not change. Because God does not change, He will not forsake His covenant. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. When God bestows upon us the gift of salvation, and it is a gift, He doesn't revoke the gift. He doesn't take it back. He doesn't rescind what He says He will do. Because God is immutable, what He begins, He finishes. Paul writes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he, which is God, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it unto the day of Christ. That which God did, that good work which he began, he is going to complete. Because God is immutable, His care over us extends to all situations in life. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. All because God is unchanging. Because God is immutable and His care over us, nothing or no one can do anything to harm us. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore I will give men for thee, and people for thy life. Certainly that is illustrated in the crossing of the Red Sea. Remember the children of Israel pass over uh, on dry ground. And then the waters come and flood uh, the uh, Egyptian army that came after them. God literally gave men for the life of Israel. God doesn't change. His people are protected forever. God is immutable in His purposes and promises. God's purposes do not change. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, Thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm, Psalm 33.11 But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purpose of His heart through all generations. What God purposes to do, He brings to, to pass. God made plans before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 For He chose us in Him, or in Christ, before the creation of the world. So, before the world was even made, before it came into existence, God chose a people for Himself. In eternity past, God made a decision. God decided to save a people. And those people will be saved. 
God is at work bringing His purposes to fruition. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. So we find out that God had a plan. God had a purpose. He was going to save a people. Those people He predestined. He predetermined. He made a decision beforehand that He was going to save them. And He is working all of that out in conformity with the purpose of His will. In keeping with the purpose of His will. That's why He sent Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's why Jesus Christ rose again. Everything that God is doing is working out a purpose that He had before the world began and will come to fruition, completion at the end. And that plan and that purpose doesn't change. It's constant. Because God is immutable. Number four. His purposes and plans are so immutable that they are considered accomplished even in eternity past. Revelation 13, 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. The Lamb is referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was slain. When was Jesus Christ slain? Approximately 30 A.D. But you see, it was such a given. It was a fact that the Scripture can refer to Jesus Christ as a lamb who was slain even before the creation of the world because it was a done deal. It was going to happen. Nothing was going to change that. It was the purpose and will of God that Jesus Christ die for us. And so, it's viewed as happening back in eternity. It was, as I say, a done deal. One of the difficulties in understanding Old Testament prophecy is that Hebrew is, in many ways, a very simple language. Now, the alphabet isn't simple. It takes us in the Western world a little difficulty learning the alphabet. And uh, Hebrew reads from right to left instead of left to right. So there are things about Hebrew that make it a little more difficult. But when it comes to the grammar, it's the easiest language on the face of the earth. I think, I don't know all languages, but it's, it's an extremely simplistic language because there are only two tenses. There is completed action and incompleted action. But in many prophecies that are future, they are in the tense of completed action because in the mind of God, it's already happened. In the mind of God, it's absolutely a done deal. So when you are translating from the Hebrew, you have to wrestle with these verb tenses and say to yourself, is this what has become to known as a prophetic perfect, a prophetic statement that's written in the past tense because of its 
certitude. The idea is that God's purposes don't change. His purposes are accomplished in salvation. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's a great comfort. That's a great encouragement. That doesn't take away from our human responsibility. I can't address every issue tonight. We bear human responsibility. We have to take the gospel to people who have never heard. God not only ordains the ends, He ordains the means. So we bear responsibility. But tonight I'm looking at one narrow idea, and that is God's purposes are going to be fulfilled. We bear responsibility for failing to witness. Paul talks about the fact that he is free from the blood of all men. He, he, he fulfilled his responsibility that God had for him. But tonight, the emphasis is every single person for whom Christ died is going to be saved. Because God's purposes cannot, will not be overthrown. What God decides to do, He will do. See, God is unique in His immutable decrees. God alone is God. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am the God, there is no other. There is no one who is like God. I am God, there is none like me. Here's a statement of God's incommunicable attribute of immutability. There is no one like God. For every other being, every other being than God is an, excuse me, is a, no, I was right in the first place, an mutable being. It can change. Even Satan is a mutable being. Satan changes. Satan, in his creation, was not in rebellion before God. But Satan rebelled against God. He changed, you see. Every created being changes. God alone is immutable. God completely reveals his plan from beginning to end. Saw Isaiah 46.10 I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times what is still to come. Here's the importance of God's prophetic writings. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things since the creation of the world. The way in which Jesus taught was in keeping. We're learning about the parables in Pastor Dave's Sunday school class. That was in keeping with the plan, the will, the purpose of God, what Isaiah had said before. God doesn't just hint about the future. God gives specifics about the future. God has decided His plan will come to pass. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. God does what it takes to bring His plan to pass. God often uses secondary causes to accomplish His purposes. In other words, God uses His creation to accomplish 
His will. But His creation will in fact accomplish His will. For example, Isaiah 46.11 From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. So, he says, I summon a bird. Remember, Elijah was fed by ravens. How did that come to pass? How did that raven feed Elijah? Answer, a sovereign God who is immutable, who had a plan, used a raven. We find Isaiah 46.11. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. We use the word calling. It's a wonderful word. It's a biblical word. God calls. God summons. God imparts to us a purpose, a reason. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through, the, through faith that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. God created you, if you are saved, to do His will. And it's going to come to pass. It's going to come to pass. God will do whatever it takes to accomplish His purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. See what a really comforting uh, attribute of God this is. Although God is immutable, yet God does, and let me write this a little better, God does experience emotions. And He acts and feels differently in response to different situations. Let me talk about this for a moment and then I've got to deal with some issues. The Spirit of God can be grieved and quenched by the actions of mankind. But this grieving or quenching does not change God's relationship to mankind. Ephesians 4.30 And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed on the day of redemption. We are told that we are not to grieve God. It is interesting that in this very same verse, people are sealed... In reference to their redemption. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed on the day of redemption. You are... Well, the word sealed here actually has a connotation. It's like a, uh, a letter that uh, in ancient days a scroll would have a waxed imprint that would be placed upon it. You can tell if the seal was broke because the waxed seal would be broken. And usually there was a, a signet ring that a king would have or a person in authority. And when that, that um, wax was hot, they would take that signet ring and, and put it within that wax so it would form a picture, like a crown or something that would be unique to that monarch, that would be unique to that king. And that was sealed. It was protected. It was preserved. The imagery here is God's seal is on you. We find out in Ephesians that that seal is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mark of the work of God in our lives. But we are sealed. We are protected. We are preserved. So even if you grieve God, 
That doesn't change God's response to us. God remains faithful. God remains true to His Word. B. Mankind has a tendency to let their emotions rule them. However, God acts in keeping with His purposes and decrees. God became tremendously angered by man's sinfulness in Genesis 6-5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This deeply grieved God and repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him at His heart. It grieved God so deeply that He was sorry that He made man. 6-7 And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from, from man's animals, to creeping things and birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made them. It grieved God so much that He felt like wiping out all of mankind. But He did not for he was faithful to his purposes. Genesis 6-8 But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God sent a flood. I believe that's a universal flood. That came upon this earth. And it destroyed everyone other than Noah's family. Noah's family was preserved in the ark. Why was Noah spared? 6.8 tells us. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here's something that's really important to keep in mind, especially as you're teaching this Bible story to children. It is absolutely essential that we understand that Noah was spared only as a result of God's grace and not Noah's merit. It wasn't because God looked down and said, look at this earth and look at these people. Oh, but I'm so thankful that there's a Noah. I'm so glad that there's at least one good guy out there that I'm going to preserve. That's not what happened. God looked down on the face of this earth and it says that God saw all mankind and all mankind was evil. And we find out, as soon as Noah gets off the ark, he's drunken, and all these issues. Noah wasn't sinless. Noah was a recipient of God's grace. Why? Because his purpose and plan doesn't fail. Now, in the couple minutes that I have, let me just quickly say, and, and I hope I'm not going to muddy the waters by saying this, but, I, but we need to understand, this is an area that is pretty controversial in, in theological circles. The whole aspect of God's emotions and, and how do we relate to those emotions. The argument is, on behalf of some, if God has emotions, then God changes. If He is joyous over something, then he's experiencing something today or at that moment that he was not experiencing before. Such as this morning, Pastor Dave was talking about the joy that there exists in heaven over one that repents. Now, does God experience that joy? If he does, what does it mean before that person was repentant? Well, two things we need to keep in mind. Let me deal with the easier one first. 
There is what is known as an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Anthros meaning man. Morphism form. And it is speaking of God in human terms. Ascribing to God human characteristics that we know he doesn't have. For example, God is a spirit. God is a spirit. God does not have eyes. But yet we read such things as, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. He doesn't have eyes, he doesn't have ears. But that is given to us to help us understand that God knows all, God is aware of all. But it's an anthropomorphism. We could argue that the Bible uses anthropopathisms. Sorry. Pathism. That means human emotions. And just like the Bible ascribes to God human uh, characteristics of arms and eyes and ears, though he doesn't have eyes and ears and arms, there would be those that argue those are anthropomathisms when we talk about God experiencing grief or joy. They're human attributes that are ascribed to God that he doesn't have. To me, that's like arguing about how many pins, how many angels can sit on the head of a pin. Okay? The bottom line is that the Bible wants to communicate to us somehow, whether they be literal or they be anthropomathisms, the Bible is communicating to us that God is intricately involved with his creation. And that God, because he is so above us, has to use the terminology of grief and joy and repentance to describe the fact that he longs for us. You know, we find Jesus as a human being looking over Jerusalem and weeps over Jerusalem and said, how often would I have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage that applies to God. But you see, in his humanity, Jesus, who truly is God, weeps over Jerusalem. And in so doing, he's reflecting the character of God. This stuff becomes mind-boggling. But what I would say to you is what's important for us to understand is that God's emotional response, unlike human beings, because God's emotions are not like human emotions, they never wag the tail. God always acts in accordance with his purpose, his will, his decree. So, application. Wow, got this really fast. God's ability translates into God is faithful, God is consistent, God is not moody, God is not forgetful, God does not grow weary. Mankind is not immutable. We should strive to be steadfast. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. You see, we are to be like God. We are not to let our emotions 
govern or dictate our actions. We are human beings. We tend to do that. It shouldn't be that way. We should be people of justice. In the Old Testament, it says that you should not pity. You should do what is right. You should do what is right. There are times in which we don't feel like forgiving people. You forgive them anyway because it's the right thing to do. There are times that we don't feel like doing this or feel like doing that. But we do it anyway because it is right. It is what we are called to do. It is how we are to act. We are to work hard at being steadfast in our relationship to God. Wherefore, beloved, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent. Be diligent. Be on the alert. Look at how easy it is for us to change. In our culture, change is usually associated with good, progress. Not always. Not always. And we as a people should strive to, yes, we need to improve because we need to grow, but we need to strive to be consistent. We must resist the temptation to be unfaithful to our word. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That is viewed as a commendable response. There are times when we make a commitment and we may not feel like following through on it. Maybe we've got a headache. Maybe there's something else we'd prefer to do. Something arises. But we said we're going to do something. Mankind generally says, ah, I don't feel like doing it now. I'm just going to forget about it. That's not God. And that's not how we're to react. It says, even if you are going to be hurt by this, you follow through, you keep your word. Number three, we need to praise God for his immutability. God is not man that we should be, lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Praise God that he is unchanging. He is immutable. He keeps his word. He brings his plan to pass. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your great goodness and grace to us. We praise you that you are the immutable God. Your word is forever settled in heaven. The plan of salvation will never change. The standard will never be altered. O oh God, the forgiveness that we enjoy this very day is a forgiveness that we're going to enjoy for all eternity. For you planned it for all eternity. And you even sent your Son to accomplish your plan and your will. Thank you, our Father, for the security that we have in your unchanging character. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.